Welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. And oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd suffer with iliotibial band syndrome if you irritated me with the idea that you missed this week's show. The Surprising Gift of Doubt. That's Mark Pittman's new book. It's stuffed with strategies to help leaders and future leaders lead better. Mark is founder of Concord Leadership Group. On Tony's Take Two, sharing is caring. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. And by Send in Blue, the only all-in-one digital marketing platform empowering nonprofits to grow. Tony.ma slash Send in Blue. It's my pleasure to welcome Mark Pittman to the show. He is founder of Concord Leadership Group. He helps leaders lead their teams with more effectiveness and less stress. His latest book is The Surprising Gift of Doubt. Use uncertainty to become the exceptional leader you are meant to be. You may know him also as the Bowtie Guy. Mark has caught the attention of media organizations as diverse as the Chronicle of Philanthropy, Al Jazeera, Fox News, Success Magazine, and Real Simple. The book and the company are at concordleadershipgroup.com, and he's at Mark A. Pittman. Mark Pittman, an overdue welcome to Nonprofit Radio. It is an honor to be here. Thanks, Tony. And I'm not sure why you haven't been on years ago and, and many times before. So I, uh, I feel bad about that because you're a smart guy and you have, lots of good, you have lots of good content, lots of good ideas. And uh, that's why I say long overdue. Well, thank you. My head may not fit out of the office after this. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Those well, kind words. <laughs> don't get carried away. But, okay, I'll try not to. Uh, but you do. You do have a lot of good ideas, including the, uh, the ideas that are in your new book, and I want to start with having you explain how agonizing doubt can be a gift. Please help us understand that. <laughs> um, it's, I've been an executive coach for 18 years now. And it's one of the things that really surprises people the most is the fact that high performers, first of all, don't tend to know how to ask for help. And then they get derailed when they start feeling doubt because they start feeling like they're they're faking it, that the, they're the, you know, the uh, Wizard of Oz, the man behind the curtain. They're mm-hmm. don't look at him because um, they're they're producing results, but they're not sure how. Um, and that doubt can be very destabilizing. But the gift is it can force us to look internally for our own cues. Uh, look to look to look in areas where we've been told are soft or, you know, they're they're woo woo. Um, look at things that make us unique, and it actually clarifies our our leadership because it's very much about the the grain of our wood, the way that we put a spin on things, as opposed to just doing all the best benchmarked activities that are out there. Um, yeah. So the surprising gift of doubt is it it can t- make it to me. It what I've seen it do is it, instead of having that inner critic saying, I must be broken. I must be just, I must, I probably shouldn't even be in this position. It shifts the conversation to why might I be perfect for this role? Why might my organization be exactly the voice that the sector needs to have right now? 
And there is a lot of introspection involved in the, I guess, the overall work that you're describing, and we'll go into some detail about, about but uh, you, you need to be reflective, introspective. Right, which often is something that a lot of leaders don't, there's not a lot of, there's so much need in, in organizations that there's not often a lot of time given for professional development or leadership growth. Mm-hmm. And so people don't think of the time as, as doing reflection as legit leadership work. They feel like I'm, when we're in early in careers, we're, or even in school, we get graded on what we accomplish. We take tests, we do tasks, we complete tasks, and that becomes how we are promoted. As we move into management and leadership, it's the, taking that time to reflect uh, is in, so incredibly important, but we haven't seen it modeled that much. Um, so there is, you're right, absolutely right. There's a lot of introspection, but there's also, that's what leaders do. They no longer, they provide, they, they no longer are just help making sure things get done, but they're also looking forward to see where should we be going? Where, where should we, skating to where the puck is, I guess, even though I'm not a sports guy, I grew up in Maine. So there's a lot of hockey there. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah. Any, any sports analogy will be uh, largely lost on me. It's oh, sports ball. Puck, so I'm not, see, I, I'm not familiar <laughs> with basketball, so I wouldn't know that skating to the puck, uh, uh, metaphor. Uh, now, and I want to reassure folks that this is not only material for current leaders, but future emerging leaders. Absolutely. When part of what, um, what we, when we're going through our leader's journey, if we can identify the earlier, we can identify what makes us different, what makes us unique, where are our limits, where, where are we really good, um, where, do, where can we excel? It can help us position our leadership roles so that we're not being squeezed into somebody else's box uh, as much as possible. The organizations are clear, are artificial. They're, they're, not, um, they're not perfect. So we're always going to have to do things that we don't enjoy or we don't like. But we can definitely, there are things that we can do in our environment and in our, our schedules and the people that are around us that can help us or can really hinder us. So the earlier we know, even on, as, as people are going through their own personal growth journey, uh, the more that they can identify these, these uniquenesses uh, that, they ha- that they bring to the table, the better. Thinking, somebody was asking on a previous podcast, can't you throw these conversations? Can't you throw some of the, you know, if you're being interviewed for something, can't you just answer the questions the way that you think they want them to be answered? And you could, but you may get the job that you don't want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Right. That may not be in your, your, your best self-interest, your own self-interest. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, I could see how uh, you would, you'd, you'd be soothing as a coach, just your voice. Oh. Right. See, I have that, I have that in New York. I grew up in New Jersey, but close enough to New York city. Don't throw. <laughs> I got that uh, East coast, but you have a, I mean, you're Northern. You said you grew up in Maine. Now you're in South Carolina. You have a, you have a soothing way about your voice. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> Mark after dark was going to be my, uh, my DJ handle. Mark after dark. <laughs> <laughs> you and uh, Allison Steele, the night bird. There, it turns out there was already a Mark after dark. So I'd have to spell dark with a C. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, but that, okay. We'll do it. There we go. <laughs> All right. Claim it. Uh, no, you just, your, your voice has a, a, a softening, calming, quality to it. I've been told that I've had some people come to me and want, um, they kind of want me to be their boss. Uh, some business owners and some nonprofit executives are, well, I want a coach that's going to tell me exactly what to do and make it, you know, make it hurt to not do it. And that's not who I am. I'm sure there are those coaches out there that are drill sergeants, but 
Um, I believe most leaders are really hard pressed and doing the best they can. And so I like to be able to encourage them and and kind of <laughs> blow on the coals that are the fire that's almost going out and rekindle their, their passion to do it themselves. Coaching with compassion. Nice. Wow.com. I'll get that. Coaching with compassion, the compassionate coach, the, the, the bow tie guy and the compassionate coach. Um, I want to dive into something that uh, very interesting to me, but you have it buried. It's buried on page 98. Okay. It's the Pittman family homework that you used to do. <laughs> Tell me about that. You, uh, you, you covered in just a couple of sentences. I, to me, it was a little bit of a gloss over because I'm very interested in what got you to where you are and what informs your coaching. And, and I got to believe that the Pittman family homework is, is integral in, in here. Absolutely. As I look at my bookshelf, they all, many of the books are things that I, I grew up reading. So in my family, we had uh, schoolwork because we were students at school, but my sister and I also had uh, homework for being Pittmans. So we were, had to read positive mental attitude books. We had to listen to motivational speakers um, and we had to go to events, seminars, rallies, those sort of things where people were talking about goal setting and, and uh, living your dream and, and all. Um, my parents were just amazed that they hadn't been taught this. They were learning it with us. And they were shocked that they'd never been taught goal setting or dreaming or leadership or people skills. And they didn't want us to, to be inflicted with missing that before we left the house. So um, I didn't know other people. My, I thought everybody had homework because they're in their family. <laughs> but I was started to read. I had been reading Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, um, Frank Betker's How I Raise Myself from Failure to Success in Selling, Charlie Tremendous Jones, Life is Tremendous, listening to Zig Ziglar, Florence Littauer, uh, Les Brown, growing up that part of the part of the way you one of our kind of traditions too was having a motivational speaker on while we were in the shower so we would always have a stack of tapes oh. next to the next to a uh, a kind of boom box and uh we would just put them on while we we're doing our thing and then you know the person's done when the tape goes off <laughs> that's when you know your shower's done wow well, so yeah i mean this was the days before uh, waterproof uh uh phones and and i iPods. So my wife knew that she she said she knew she uh, was when we were dating. She knew she was dating an entrepreneur because I had a whole bunch of tapes she had to clear off to the passenger seat of the car. <laughs> I was just so used to listening to different tape series and uh, you know Kiyosaki, Rich Dad Poor Dad, and just, yeah, all sorts of different. Always learning, trying to always. What was the one growing. after after Kurosawa? What did you say? Kiyosaki, uh, Robert Kiyosaki wrote a uh, book oh. called Rich Dad Poor Dad, and a series after that. Rich Dad Poor Dad. Yeah. Just different ways people, different uh, mindsets people have about money and um, security. And and it's really helpful. And going into fundraising was really helpful to have this kind of being able to speak the language of your donors is one of the most important things um, in fundraising and having been exposed to this literature that the other leaders were being exposed to made it a lot easier to, to talk to them. In fact, my first talks in, um, first professional talks were translating marketing things and sales for fundraisers because sales was the S word 25 years ago. And um, so I would take like Seth Godin's idea virus and permission marketing and make it. So I would fully attribute it, but I'd make it so that it was understandable to how this could work in a nonprofit. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. 
The Chronicle of Philanthropy, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Stanford Social Innovation Review, The Washington Post, The Hill, Cranes, Nonprofit Quarterly, Forbes, Market Watch. That's where Turn to clients have gotten recent exposure. You want that kind of exposure for yourself, for your expertise? Turn to has the relationships that can make it happen. Your story is their mission. Turn-to.co Now let's go back to The Surprising Gift of Doubt. So this Pittman family homework, which obviously, as you're describing, you know, evolved through the through the decades. You're continually, continually learning to even today. You say that in the book a couple of places. Um, but this was like elementary school. You were, I mean, there are there Probably are parents who were considered little, this indoctrination. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, looking back on it, it totally was. And when was. Charlie, <laughs> totally, well, my uh, my. Charlie Tremendous Jones became a mentor of mine, which he'd been a hero of my universe because I, I love his book. Um, and he said, when I was looking with our kids, he said, oh, I would never do it that way. With, as your parents said, I would teach, have them do stories. I'd have them uh, have your kids read biographies and be inspired by by stories as opposed to reading the how-to literature. But um, I probably because of my upbringing, I love, I love nonfiction. <laughs> I love reading a good how-to book on on leadership or on goal setting or Vision casting, storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> credit, to, credit to Pittman parents. Well, one time Sandy Reese was in interviewing me and she, uh, years ago, and she came up with a, she cataloged all the books that I referenced in the talk. Uh, in my, just in a conversationally, because I still read 50 to 75 books a year. Um, to, and, and I had to set a goal years ago to read fit nonfiction because that'll make me a better storyteller, but I had to set it as a goal. Now I can fully enjoy reading nonfiction. I mean, reading fiction, sorry. Okay. Reading, sorry, yeah, reading the fiction books um, that are enjoyable. I always thought it was cheating, but now it's a goal. So I'm okay. <laughs> I set a certain number of goals uh, for fiction books I want to read in a year. And 50 to 75 a year, you still read? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm cranking through books this year too. I don't know why, but I love it. Well, part of it is there's just, I want to keep, Fresh. And when I'm writing a book, I try to not to not read in the, the genre that I'm writing in. So I had, didn't read a lot of leadership books when I was doing Surprising Gift of Doubt because I didn't want to um, mistakenly like Im- take take over somebody else's thoughts that should be attributed to them. Because I really do think crediting the source is really important. Um, which this book even got more more to the point. The editors were even more insistent that I, I double and triple checked my my references, which I thought was. Wonderful. Yes, there's a bunch of end notes. Yep. I haven't been pushed this hard uh, in a while. So I'm really, really pleased with the team that helped me with this one. Something you say early on is that the motivation is within you. So, so expand on that for us. Well, the um, part, the, I don't remember exactly. I know that was part of the chapter. Sorry. No, you don't have to flip through the pages. No, well, you know, a, you write a book and then. No, it's, it's not done. a quiz on page 16 or something, but you talk about the motivation, the motivation for leadership and, and good and just good intentions is, is within you. Yeah. I think part of what we, um, we spend so much of our life and another part of the book, I, I do this map of the leader's journey where it's a, a four quadrant section uh, where we start off on the confidence scale, which is the vertical scale. And we go down to unsure. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about the leader's journey. Yep. Okay. Well, that's part of it is that we are so used to looking externally for our cues 
that the we forget to look internally and find out what what are what what do we value? What are we passionate about? What are two things we forget? We forget to to actually give them air, and often we don't really permit ourselves to to define what we value or what we hold on to because we're looking for others and for cues, either the culture or systems. But the other thing that we somehow don't do is we don't credit them as being unique traits. We think everybody must be like us. Uh, you and I both wear glasses and it's almost like we forget that we're wearing glasses at times. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of trying to find your glasses and they're right there on your face. They're not even on your head, <laughs> they're right on your face. You, um, you get, I get fingerprints all over my glasses when I do that. But we often, the stuff that's within us is often the stuff that makes us unique, makes us uh, a, a valued part of the team. And we just kind of write it off as a w- weird quirk of our own, not something that's worth giving attention to. It's, it's, some, it's among those natural strengths. You talk about natural strengths versus learned skills. Well, so, yeah, yeah. Some of our natural strengths, you're right. We, I guess we, we, uh, we minimize them thinking oh, everybody, everybody's that smart or everybody thinks about that. Or if I can do it quickly, then it must not be work. Um, I remember yeah. being in an early job. I, I loved, I was fundraising for prep school and I loved it. I just loved the traveling. I loved the, you know, when I was home at the boarding school, being at the table with the 10 other students, the 10 students and my, my wife and I were the faculty parents. And mm-hmm. um, I loved the kind of matching school's mission with donors values and trying to see if there was a fit and being okay if there wasn't, but being excited if there were that all excited me, but I didn't think I could enjoy work that much. So I was talking with a, <laughs> with a faculty colleague and I tried to make it sound really hard, you know, cause there's a lot of stuff that is hard. The travel isn't that inspiring there's delays and all so i tried to really accentuate the bad stuff and he looked over at me and he said you love your work don't you and i felt so guilty because i totally did and then i found out he didn't he would never want to do what i was doing because every day was different every day i had to come up on the spot with different answers and um and I didn't know what, I had no idea who was going to call, what I was going to, who I was going to see, what opportunities were going to arise. He liked being in his classroom and knowing this is the curriculum and this is where I can adjust if we go too long in one area or if we go too fast in another. He, he loved that stability. Uh, and that's where I started realizing that the stuff that I thought was just kind of everybody would want to do this. And I, you know, I kind of got lucky is no, not everybody wants to do this. And any fundraisers listening to this knows that because we're usually the oddballs out at the nonprofit. We're the ones that are outward focused in ways that others aren't. Why don't we talk about the, the four quadrants of, mm. of a leader's journey? Um, you have some self-assessments that folks are just going to have to buy the book to do. We're not going to be able to talk through the details of okay. self-assessments, but, but the leader's journey through the yeah. four through the four quadrants, I think that's valuable, and especially moving from quadrant two to three. Please. Sure. So the uh, what I loved about create I, part of I've been trying for eighteen years to explain what I do with with as a coach, and this was the first time when I created this four quadrant methodology. It was the first time it people repeated it back to me. They understood it, and my wife looked at it and said, "Well, this is me as." learning. This isn't just leadership, but the, the axes, again, are confidence uh, vertically and then inputs horizontally. Quadrant one is where you're high confidence and you're looking externally. So we most leaders only get half the map. We don't get the whole map. We only get the external half. So we, we start in a quadrant where we've seen other people lead. And so we start copying them. Somebody gives us the ability to run a project or to, to 
lead a team, um, some sort of leadership. And either we're super excited because we've known we're a leader and finally somebody else sees it, or we're scared, but we have the confidence from the other people that they're going to do it. That's And that's where we just try to do what they've done. Um, <laughs> some of the people that I listened to growing up, some of the motivational speakers would say, if, if you're leading a team and you turn around and there's no one behind you, you're just out for a walk. Um, that's when your confidence starts going down, which I dipping into the quadrant two, which is the experiment quadrant where you start trying to figure out, okay, what worked for Tony didn't work for me. Like Tony has his own way of doing things and it's not clearly not working for me. When I say jump, people don't say how high, what do I need? Where are the deficiencies and how do I fix them? And that's where you start taking courses. You start getting certifications, reading books, going to seminars, going to conferences, listening to podcasts. So it's people skills or um, closing uh, on sales or fundraising, um, anything. And most leaders kind of stay in quadrant two, lurching from success to success. They have so much success that the people around them feel like, oh yeah, this is, they're going to pull the rabbit out of the hat again. We know that whatever she does, she's an amazing leader. Um, it, but she, the leader herself is, is wondering, is seeing all the deficits, all the deficiencies, all the stuff that they don't have measured up. And that's where the doubt builds up inside them to think, well, maybe I'm not the right person. If they have the opportunity, sometimes it's just through strain and stress. Sometimes it's through coaching to see that there's a whole map. And the other half of the map is all the internal cues. So the external cues are great because it tells us how we learn and there are good systems that we can learn from. But when Mark, we move I just in- wanna, wait, before you continue, I want to just make sure folks are clear about what the, what the horizontal and these are labeled. So the, so the, the, the vertical is confident and unsure. So confident is on top, unsure at the bottom. And then the horizontal is external and internal. So when you're in quadrant, when you're in quadrant one, you're uh, observing and you're, you're confident and that's the confident external quadrant. Mm-hmm. Quadrant two, that's the unsure external. And you're trying to fix what's that's wrong. That's yep. what you're talking about right now. I just want to make sure everybody's clear. And that's the cusp. So I find the magic happens at the when people are moved from quadrant two to quadrant three, which is the they're still in the unsure half of the map, but you're moving internally to figure out. So let me illustrate like this. Uh, have you read Getting Things Done by David Allen? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, well, it's we uh, have thirteen thousand listeners. They've heard of it. Okay, they've heard of it. Great. The audience so, is better read than the host. <laughs> I can assure um, you that. I assure that. So the uh, if you if you read a book like Getting Things Done, it's all in time management, and you only implement ten percent of it. In quadrant two, you're going to think, "Wow, I failed at another thing. Yeah. I can only get ten percent of this." The book says it changed people's lives. It's not <laughs> changing my lives. I just write lists. That's all I get out of this. Quadrant three is where you shift the question to, "Huh." I wonder why either, I wonder why that didn't work for me. What is it? Uh, what is it about the book? Or it's shifting the focus to, wow, I got 10%. That 10% is really helpful. This writing list things with the next action item really actually is, is really helpful. And as one of my mentors said years ago, eat the chicken, spit out the bones. All right. The chicken for me and getting things done is writing lists. I don't have to do the whole reviews and the files, cabinets, and all this other stuff that has helped other people. It's not going to help me. And as you start building in quadrant three with looking at your hard wiring, looking at your stories, you tell yourself, looking at your goal setting, your mission, your vision, your values, your personal style, it starts building up your confidence again, because we're in quadrant two, you're just seeing all your, what you lack in that 
you're afraid somebody's going to figure out that you're really just faking it. In quadrant three, you start seeing why some of the things work the way they do for you. Um, why your organization doesn't necessarily do whatever all the other organizations are doing, but you don't have it just a, it's not just a whim or a feeling. It's you start being able to have the language to be able to express what, you, why you do what you do. And that builds your confidence back up to quadrant four, which is a focused leader quadrant. Okay. Before you go to four. Yeah. 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 A lot of people get stuck in, in the second quadrant. Oh, absolutely. And, and the transition from two to three, you find a lot of people in your practice and you generalize beyond that stuck in that second quadrant, what we're working, we're working with external systems mm-hmm. that, that are not, not being rewarded or not looking being for the next guru, to, looking for the uh, next framework. Yeah, yep. Why is it? Why is, why are so many people stuck in two looking for this external help? That's it's routinely not, not fulfilling for them. I think part of it is because we're, we're raised that way. We look for parents for cues. We look for coaches for cues. We look for, look to externally to teachers uh, to grade our work, uh, bosses to give us, um, you know, performance reviews. And I think we're taught probably, at least in the cultures that I work in, to not really trust ourselves, to not trust the inner voice, the nudges that we're getting, because those are soft. We should look for hard data. We should look for benchmarking. We should, we should see what others are doing. Um, there, there are good things with looking at others, but it's just not the complete picture. I think it really needs, it's like an introvert that is trying to copy an extrovert boss. So the extrovert uh, mentor walks around the office, talks to people, gets energized by doing that, has a high level of energy with the personal relationships. Um, an introvert boss, this introvert that's trying to be you know, an emerging leader maybe, will get drained from that. It's not that they can't be social and be engaging, but it's that it's not energizing for them. So they'll need to take a lot of time to uh, recharge their batteries, but they won't necessarily give them the, if they don't look internally to realize, oh, oh, I'm wired differently. They'll try to keep forcing themselves into somebody else's mold. Um, you know, the, the, the proverbial square peg in a round hole. Okay. Somebody else's mold being based on the way we grew up, like you're saying. The external, yeah. Teachers, parents, bosses, you're trying to fit into, we're accustomed to trying to fit their molds. Well, and think about it, nonprofits too. Yeah. Boards, every board member seems to come in with their own kind of mold for how a nonprofit should work or how a leader should work or how something should get done. And what is incumbent on us as board, as nonprofits to help with the boards is to tr- onboard them, to train them to, this is how our, our nonprofit works. These are our values as a nonprofit. This is how we do things. This is the communication styles we'll have. We will not go back behind each other's back and gossip. That is not how we operate here. Um, but that often that onboarding and, and board, uh, board orientation often doesn't happen. So you're stuck with a bunch of people that have these external molds that they want to try to force the leaders and the staff and the nonprofit into that aren't necessarily helpful or in line with what the nonprofit's there for. Yeah. Or even worse than not helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Detrimental, (laughs) hazardous, toxic, you know. It's time for Tony's take two. Sharing is caring. Who do you know that you can share nonprofit radio with? Please, I know you've got lots of folks, but let's just focus on one. Out of all your circles, all your spheres of influence, your networks, your friends, lovers, loved ones. I hope lovers are loved ones. Well, not necessarily, right? No, take that back. That's not necessary. I mean, eventually, but maybe not necessarily now. Husbands, wives, Children, grandchildren, ex-husbands, ex-wives, 
ex-partners, ex-boyfriends, ex-girlfriends. Maybe, maybe among all these exes, maybe you're trying to get back together. Nonprofit radio could be the conduit, the, the method that opens that door. Look, I've been thinking about you in very, very special ways. You need to start listening to nonprofit radio. <laughs> <It's kind> of <laughs> I realize now you're the light and the love of my life. Please start listening to nonprofit radio. <laughs> it's, it, it'll help your career. And then when we get back together, it'll bring you and us to retirement security. What better, <laughs> what better way to get back together than income and retirement security? Nonprofit radio is the conduit for your long-term security as you're getting back with your ex. Nonprofit radio. <laughs> Please, who can you share nonprofit radio with? Who's going to benefit? They don't have to work for a nonprofit, you know. Board members, board members are great listeners to nonprofit radio. So, give it some thought. Among all your spheres and all your contacts and, and influence, who could you share nonprofit radio with? I'd be grateful. Let them know about the show. I'm not going to pitch it to you. You you already know what the show is. That is Tony's take two. Now back to the surprising gift of doubt. So then moving from two to three, I know you, I know you, you already did this, but because you were ready to go from three to four, but I'm <laughs> yeah, go for it. This is great. You're suffering a lackluster host. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm just processing it. You've been thinking yeah. about this for decades. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I read the book, but I'm still just I'm still processing. So the moving from two to three, I I kind of saw that as as a synthesis of, nice. of all these different systems that you don't call it synthesis. No, uh, I don't. I'm, That's I'm, your I'm redoing all your work. You've been thinking about it for decades. <laughs> you call it analyze. I call it synthesis. I like it. Uh, you, you you're free to call it analyze, of course. I, I thought <laughs> I of it as a synthesis you. of all the things that you attempted in in these external systems, the books, the webinars, the, the, the week long leadership conferences, whatever they were that were only partially or maybe not at all helping you, you, but you extract out what does, what does have value yes. to you and, and you make sense of it and you emerge in a better place. And that's, to me, that was the synthesis of, I like that. The yeah. Next, and you, the next quadrant. And you also learn some of the um, some of the patterns that you fall fall into. You start reflecting enough to say, "Oh, wait, I'm doing that again." Does that mean I'm stressed? Or um, there's one of the assessments, the Highlands Ability Battery, um, which tests you on how you actually perform on things. It's not how do you feel about would you rather read a book or go to a movie. It's not questions like that, but it's do this task under time pressure, and it shows what comes quickly to you. One of the things that came out for me early in my career was rhythm memory, which is a kinesthetic type of learning. Um, it's a, and it's also tied to a desire to move around. So I've always looked for jobs that involved moving around because I knew that that would be more life-giving and energizing for me. Mm. What that meant was that I never like, moved. like your work at the, at the prep school, right? Traveling, exactly. Traveling Absolutely. It, it, right. But that also changed my career tra trajectory because I realized many of the major gift fundraisers that I'd seen that went into management became very frustrated. 
because they had to manage other people that were doing the work and they actually wanted to do the work. So I, I took some ownership of my own career path and moved into positions that um, allowed me to still have that kind of external, I'm an extrovert, um, you know, movement. So that kind of synthesis is also the internal synthesis of this is my way of operating in the world. And I want to try to put myself as much as possible in ways that work with that. Um, not that I don't want to grow, not that I don't want to be stretched or, or challenged, but I also don't want to put myself in a position where I'm just going to languish. Although that's sometimes what the right career path should be. When the headhunters call, they they want to see you know a paper career path of associate to manager to director to senior VP or something, which may not be the way that is realistic for for people. Mm-hmm. All right, so now. Move Talking from experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, you at least you at least have you at least would would be uh, would look good on paper and do look good on paper. I I would I would never be I, I can't be an employee. Uh, I would I would fail the I would <laughs> I would fail the screening interview with the with the with the headhunter. Uh, assistant, assistant. I mean, I wouldn't even get to the associate level headhunter. <laughs> I remember managing director. I don't know how I get yeah, the headhunter I'd, call. I'd show up late. I'd be twenty minutes late just because I, I felt like, why should I be on time for you? And then if I ever made it to the, if I ever made it to the interview, which I never would, but if I met, if I met a principal in the organization, I'd be show, I'd show up late. I'd be in sneakers. You know, I just, just I would, unemployable. I would do everything I could because I know I'd be a, I would be a shitty employee. I just don't fit the mold. <laughs> So I, I would I'd be doing them a favor by wasting their time. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, so move us into the fourth level for those uh, for those who are, are more suited to uh, work in an organization. You're moving to a level of you mentioned at one point grace. You're leading with grace and finesse. I think you say right. And and there's a the it's because you've got the kind of confidence and the peace of mind of knowing why you're doing things differently. So instead of just thinking about, I must be so bad because I can't get energized. I don't like going to all those social events night after night. Um, you start realizing why, what fills you up and what fills your organization, your team, your whatever your organization is. Uh, and that grows your confidence to that fourth quadrant, which I'm, I called focused, um, but I don't want to make it sound like it's nirvana. Uh, it's not all blissful because we're still dealing with human beings and we're one ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> um, still, leadership is still a challenge. In, in absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you now have a, a much, you have the full map you can look at and look at, do I need to co- find somebody to copy? Do I need to learn skills from people? Do I need to um, go to a class or get a podcast or read a book? Or do I need to actually figure out what, what the synthesizing, do I need to analyze what I've consumed already or our organizations consumed and figure out why are we doing it differently? Um, one of the things I also want to be clear on is that the data can be helpful. So I don't want to discredit external stuff Okay. Like, uh, with fundraising in particular, uh, when fundraising letters, we know if they're chattier and they use you, they get better response than if they're, uh, boring things that you know, essays that would get a, uh, high school, a grade a from a high school teacher. Yeah. Um, we know that we know that, and there are some nonprofits that might be tempted to say, ah, we don't, we want to be more business-like. Um, and so I, it's not just throwing out all the data that's out there, but uh, synthesizing it. I'm really stuck on that word. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, the quad, third quadrant synthesis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's the way I, I'm one reader, uh, just one reader. That That's the way I conceived of it. 
Um, all right, so all right, so we got these quadrants as sort of progression. I don't know, the four quadrants sound like something out of the Matrix, but um, <laughs> I didn't watch much of that series, so I can't go beyond that. Uh, that so let's leave it there. <laughs> that analogy. Um, you talk about and you mentioned early earlier storytelling, and you talk a good bit about different stories, stories that we tell ourselves, stories about the organization. Talk talk some about uh, the stories we tell ourselves. That's one of the things that I, I think a lot of us don't reflect on is the kind of the self-talk that's going on in our head all the time. Yeah. Um, the two that I talk about in that are the, the, I call them stock stories. They're either the ones that you tell people when you're meeting them for the first time. So we often have kind of go-to stories where it helps position, helps people position us in their mind. Um, so maybe some people like laugh lines, some people like, uh, you know, what their education history is or their career history. There's certain things we go to as we start paying attention to those, we can start seeing if they really reflect what we're trying to do. Often we get stuck in these from a different time in our life. And we just kind of tell the same stories because we think we're going to get the same response. The one that the other type of stock story though that happens is um, what Jessica Sharp here in Greenville is really cattle has her clients just catalog the self-talk going through and just for a day or a couple of days, listing all the different things that enter your head. And that takes some discipline, especially to do it non-judgmentally, but things like, ah, oh, I always fail. I always mess that up. Oh, I can't, I'm never good at that. Um, writing them down on a piece of paper. And then after your time, holding that paper up and just asking, well, reviewing them. And then she asks her clients to say, would you talk to a friend like this? And oftentimes our thoughts are so toxic. We're, we're actually filling and we're polluting our heads because we're so hard on ourselves. We're saying things to ourselves that we wouldn't even say to others. Right. Or we're poisoning yeah. ourselves with them. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So her, her invitation is why don't you become a better friend to yourself? <laughs> um, which I, I think it's really, I don't know if you've experienced this time, but I, it's very hard sometimes when th- when you're used to being hard on yourself to loosen up, lighten up, because it feels like you might just go, I, I feel like I might just go off the rails if I'm too kind to myself. I need to be really hard, you know, and, and be a yeah, disciplinary. I feel like you need to be a little stricter. Otherwise I'm going to get reckless. Right. You know, if, yeah. I'm, if I, if I loosen up and you know, something, something, something careless, I'll do something careless or, you know, something along those lines. I'm self-employed, but I often joke that my boss is kind of a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I am too, but I, I don't have a good joke like that. My I got, wife, I have the lackluster host. You're stuck there you go. Host. My wife, my wife reminds me that I am the boss. So I can, you know, you listen as a coach, you listen to a lot of, uh, a lot of people who are stuck in quadrant two, mm-hmm. uh, beating themselves up and whatever they are. And they might even be in, they might even be in the, the grace and finesse quadrant quadrant four, but they're still, they're still hard on themselves or the organ, the work is hard on them. How how does a how do you not, not generalize all coaches? How do you as a coach keep a, stay positive? Like go from one coaching session to the next to the next to the next in a day, or even if there's a couple of days. I mean, how do you continue to relate as a positive human being when you're hearing mm-hmm. tough story after tough story after you know maybe insurmountable challenge? Uh, uh, I find people incredibly fat. That's a great question. I find people incredibly fascinating and um, I I'm a glasses always full kind of guy, not half full or half empty. It's always full of water or air. So um, 
there's a, a strong strong sense of optimism that I, I I bring to the table and resiliency, I guess, because um, even people that are going through hard things, it's one of one of the postcards I carry in my bag when I travel. When I used to travel, hopefully I'll start again. Uh, it says, "Just when the caterpillar thought his life was over, he became a beautiful butterfly." Um, and so there's that sense of even the ends are often beginnings for people. Um, uh, there's definitely times where I have to do some of my, some of my own stuff, like um, center, you know, some meditation practices and other things, just to in exercise to keep the headset. But um, I've seen so many people become transform themselves into people that they've wanted to be, but they they weren't really sure they could be. That that gives me the hope as I keep going from call to call. And sometimes it does seem like they, the calls gang up <laughs> one toxicity to another toxicity. Yeah. Um, I mean, you need your own, you need self-care. Sometimes. Well, and, yeah. And I also, one of the things, the privilege uh, at being a coach is that you get to not be in the hiring and firing space with these people. So you get to be with them and it's, it's almost, I've heard this, I haven't experienced this, but I've heard in um, the Midwest, the, they used to have blizzards where you couldn't, uh, back in the day when you needed to walk to the barn and milk the cows, that you could get lost on the way back to the house because the blizzard was so, so, um, so cover, you know, covering or severe. Uh, severe, maybe. Okay, great. So you needed a rope between the two buildings. And sometimes I feel like as a coach, I'm the one that's either the rope or I'm able to connect between calls saying, hey, but remember just three calls ago, you, you already talked about that. And this is what you were going to do. Oh, that's right. I forget. I forgot I did that. That's super. Okay. And just kind of get po- pointing the way, pointing some of the rocks uh, on the path for people to take. And that's, that's incredibly uh, life-giving for sure. Blinding, blinding. The blizzard was blinding. Thank you. That's what we wanted. Well, <laughs> we're, both, we're both 50 plus. So blinding. <laughs> yes. That's what you want. Um, yeah. The ro- I said you're uh you're the you're the the rope back. That's I like that. That's a, a, quite a metaphor. Good one. Um, and it's because yeah, the demands of life can really be blinding too. There's the uh, people we're there's so the Center for Creative Leadership tried to figure out what the one thing was for business leaders that would be the most stressful, and it turns out there were four, and they were all as one as somebody else pointed out to me, they're all people. <laughs> Peers, colleagues, customers, and supervisors or bosses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in nonprofits, it's often boards, donors, uh, staff, and and um, and the and the clients. Those are all pulling people apart. So it's really easy to lose our way and to have somebody that's that's sole job is there to be there to help you be better. Um, that I became a coach because in my experience, I grew more through talking to coaches uh, than I did. Consultants are great. They have a they have a, a blueprint that they were hired them to to put onto the organization. Mm-hmm. But talking to a coach that didn't even know my work helped me to grow as an individual, and I could figure out how to do be a better individual in my job when I understood a little bit more about myself. Well, and I love you. Also have the voice, so you have, well. There we go. You got the because <laughs> it is mostly by phone. So compassionate <laughs> voice. Good. Yeah, yeah. You were destined. It's time for a break. Send in Blue. It's an all-in-one digital marketing platform with tools to help build end-to-end digital campaigns that look professional, are affordable, and keep you organized. They do digital campaign marketing. Most marketing software designed for big companies has the enterprise-level price tag. Not so. Send in Blue. Priced for nonprofits. It's an easy-to-use marketing platform that walks you through the steps 
of building a campaign. If you want to try out Send in Blue and get the free month, go to the listener landing page at tony.ma slash sendinblue. We've got Buku, but loads more time for the surprising gift of doubt. Some more, a little more about stories. Maybe digress yeah. a little bit, but uh, you talk about the future eulogy. This is so. This is other stories that other people would say would tell about you. How do you, you know, influence your future history and talk about the future eulogy and that kind of storytelling? Sure. Well, and stories because our phones may have an Android or iOS operating system. Some people may still BlackBerry. I don't know, but our human as human beings, it's uh, story is our operating system. And one of the ways we can program that is by figuring out what's the story we want to be living. Uh, for me and uh, for many people, because if you Google your eulogy, you'll find this as a coaching practice that's been well used, is to think about at your funeral, what will people say about you? As What will your closest people, maybe your family, uh, community members, colleagues, what are they going to say? Um, and some of us, that's a little bit too hypothetical. So it's uh, the other way to look at it is if you were to die today, what would they say about you today? Mm. And writing it down, even in bullet points, doesn't have to be complete sentences, can bring some clarity to how they perceive you or how you think you're being perceived versus how you want to be. I had one leader that was, we before the pandemic, had uh, quadrant three leadership days where we do, people would fly into Greenville and we'd hold the whole day and we'd kind of work together as a group through some of these exercises. And one his, um, the kind of the story that she wanted for her department, and she realized horrified that her staff would never know that she wanted it to be a joy-filled place because she was so focused on policies and procedures and tightening, you know, um, routines that had been really lax and not non-existent. Um, but she said, "Now I have an opportunity to to live into this story that I've written," and it was sort of like. Her, for her, it was a history of the future. It wasn't a eulogy. But thinking about that kind of final <laughs> beginning with the end in mind, Franklin Covey's uh, habit too, can be very helpful for us. Uh, my example was when I did this in my 20s, I realized I want my kids to know I love them, but going away to work didn't necessarily communicate that love. So it allowed me to be, I wasn't going to stop going away to work because that providing for my family was something that was pretty important to me. But um, I was able to then figure out what are other ways that we can, I can communicate that love so that they know that I love them um, despite my going away. You just buy them things when you go away. Send, send that could things. definitely be part of it. Yeah. Just Until my wife said, palpable items. No more stuffed animals. I used to get one in every place I was going. And she's like, that's enough. They have enough stuffed animals. (laughs) I would just, I just reduce it to the tangible goods. Just, just send, just send presents. We know love is equivalent to tangible, tangible items. The more. (laughs) And the shot glasses in the airport stores were a little bit confusing to kids. Like what, why is this a doll cup? What is this? (laughs) Shot glasses. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, the I, I heart New York shot glasses. Right. Just send things, sending things. That's equivalent to love. If you're going to be away, re- replace yourself with items. <laughs> with items. Uh, with gifts. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So that's the, yeah, I thought that was very interesting. The future eulogy. Uh, Have you ever done an exercise like that? No, no, I haven't. Or, or what even, even making it simpler, what, what folks would say about you now. Yeah, it's it's very clarifying and a little chilling for some people. Yeah, 
talk a little bit. So, uh, so just the listeners know, see, we're bouncing around on different things that, that I think are interesting because, you know, you, you, we can't really do the self-assessments that are, that are part of Mark's book. You just got, you got to get the damn book. <laughs> the surprising gift of doubt, Mark A. Pittman, you got to get the book to do the self-assessments to move yourself from the quadrant two you may be stuck in or to move yourself from whatever quadrant you're in to advance your, your, your current leadership effectiveness or your future leadership. We're all potentially future leaders. Even those of us who don't work in an organization, we're still leading. I lead, I lead folks. I just, Absolutely. I just, uh, they're not on my payroll, but uh, they're on an organization payroll of, that, I, that I am leading, but I'm leading them. So leadership still applies, even if you're an entrepreneur, solopreneur, however you want to call yourself. Well, I'm really glad you said that because I think a lot of people think leaders uh, is is a title, which that is a form of leadership. But like you're saying, it's influencing others. And as human beings, we're always influencing other people. And that is a form of leadership. And so I try to take the broadest view. Absolutely. And I find it, you know, uh, all right, I'm doing, my uh, synesthesia kicked in. I just got to chill because I'm thinking about times when I've been able to influence someone. I'm not going to, I can't divulge any details, but influence someone to a way of thinking that I'm, that I'm, that I saw that they didn't. And I've moved there. I'm, you can move people's thinking yeah. and it's not, it's not uh, conniving or anything. It's just, it's moving. It's just consensus building, but yes. You know, and I'm not saying I'm successful at it every time or, you know, but, but when you, when you, when you're successful at helping people see things in a different way, you know, whether it's, uh, I don't know, uh, it's a concept or it's money or it's a, it's a path forward to uh, in a relationship to bring it to fundraising. Um, it's, it's very, very gratifying. I mean, it's, yeah. like I said, it's giving me chills a couple of instances where, uh, where it's happened. So that's all to me, that's all leadership. Yes, absolutely. I firmly agree. Yes. Wholeheartedly. Cool. Okay. All right. Otherwise, we're shutting you off. You know, got, <laughs> got forty-six minutes. That, that's the end. That's the end for the show. So I'm today. glad you. <laughs> no, I, I figured you would, of course. Um, so you know, we're moving around to different things that can help you help you uh, understand the self-assessments, help you move your leadership forward. And another one that Mark talks about in the book is is goal setting. Different types of goals, very important. Goal setting. Talk yes. about that. Well, so one of the things that we do with goal, there's a lot of books written on goal setting. So this is the, the third of the ma- three major areas that I put, focused on. But what I did was I took about 18 years ago, 17 years ago, I took all the different goal setting things. Uh, not only did I study as a kid growing up in my family, but I also was in a, a program in college that actually required me to get a lower grade because I was supposed to take leadership and and learn goal setting as a extracurricular, not just as part of my course of study. But I also, my master's in organizational leadership. So I've had these all sorts of formal education on goal setting as hey, well right. as informal. I don't understand. You just said something, you, a course required you to get a lower grade. What, what are you yeah. saying? What yeah. Is- there, was an, there was a scholarship at the undergrad college I went to that required me to get I had a lower, not required. I shouldn't say that, that there was a lower grade expectation because there was an expectation that you were going to be all in on leadership and student activities. And part of that was having a mentor with a staff member and having uh, regular meetings with them, teaching you goal setting and teaching you how to uh, do mission statements and how to create strategic plans and that sort of thing. 
And that was all sort of extracurricular. And, what, and you got too high a grade? Is that what happened? No, no, no. Fortunately, they let my high grades still stand. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. But, but there were other, my, some of my other friends who had a different scholarship had to get, keep a higher GPA. I didn't have the pressure of having to keep a GPA to keep the scholarship I had. So I see. Okay. Yeah. All right. So goal setting. Talk anyway, so, so what I did was I tried to take a bunch of the parts that I didn't realize I was doing quadrant three work at the time, but I tried to take a bunch of the different parts that I liked. And this, this system that I use, um, I submit to, it's in the book and I use it with my clients. Uh, it isn't the end all be all, but it's a good one to try. Uh, the first step you do is write a, a list of a hundred things to accomplish in the next year or in your life. Um, it's a, and, and why a hundred for me is because it forces you to get silly and it forces you to think creatively because you're, at some point you're just trying to fill lines. Um, what I, most people that I've got, done this with, they get 10 pretty quickly because it's job related, probably things that are going to be on yeah, the performance 10 goals, review. 10 goals in a lifetime or even in a year, that's not yeah. too hard. No, but then the next 10 become really hard. And when we were doing these uh, intensives here in Greenville, people would call me over to the table and say, Mark, um, can I have uh, this? Can I put this, this goal on my list? Uh, it's like planting a garden. I want to plant a garden. Can I put that on my list? <laughs> Chuck, of course you can. It's your list. And that's the point. Um, It gets the personal and the professional together. And what I have found with so many leaders is that they get so fragmented in their life. They have the professional side, they have their family side, they have different sides that when they're looking at their goals comprehensively and they're they're listing out a hundred forces you to do that in some way, um, it the amount of um, centering that that brings to human beings, the energy in the room invariably goes up because people see themselves, their full selves represented there. Mm-hmm. And it's not like you're going to necessarily share with your board or your boss that you're doing a garden goal, but it's your life. So you get to set the goals for that you want to have. Um, so the first step is that is writing the hundred. The second step is then the history of the future, which is you read through all of them and it will take days usually to do the hundred, um, read through the, uh, read through them and then just project forward. What does it look like 12 months from now? If you've accomplished everything on that list, even the most far out crazy ones, what are people saying about you? What awards do you have? What degrees do you have? What are you, how are you feeling about yourself? And then let that sit. Um, if you did nothing else, you'd be shocked in 12 months, how many of those things you get accomplished. I've tested this with groups and it's fascinating. Uh, but then you, then you can map them out. You, you go back over the list and um, look for two different types of goals, either the ones that make sense, like planting a garden that if you've also to fill in hundred lines, you also to plant carrots, plant cabbage, plant potatoes, planting a garden will kind of scoop up a bunch of those others, other goals, the smaller goals in it. So you could use that's one type of magnet goal. The other ones are some that just kind of pop off this, the, the page, or you kind of get a little kind of jolt of joy. There's, there's, it's not really rational why some of those are there, but paying attention to those and, and trying to call the list down to about three to five of the rational goals and the irrational goals. Um, and then plotting those out and focusing on those. Um, some people get it done in a quarter. I usually have to take the full year for each of those goals, but. On one of your bookshelves behind you, you have a license plate that says goal guy. And that's because of this Is process. That a reference to basketball again? Or no, it's not. It was my, my first ever training was with a equine uh, vet. And my second training was because of his referral was with a physical therapy practice who was owned, but they were owned by physicians and they wanted to prove that they needed an admin help to do the billing so mm-hmm. they could keep doing more 
care of patients. So we set up, uh, we broke down their goals uh, over the course of a year, what their revenue had to be, what, how they were going to communicate it to the people that are own the practice, all the different things, 12 months of them. Uh, we worked also how they could operate, operationalize their, their strengths. So the people, what did the people like doing? What didn't they like doing? They'd never asked you. They just did the work that was in front of them. They found out one person really loves knees, somebody else loved ankles. So they started shifting the workload so they could do better at a higher quality. Um, within four months of that training, they'd hit their annual goals. Within their, the 12 month goals they had accomplished in four months. And so I saw this, uh, I, Pippi, uh, I saw her at a store and she said, that's the goal guy. That's the guy I was telling you about pointing at me. <laughs> so I got a license plate. This is a goal guy. I thought that right. was pretty cool. As an equine veterinary practice, you could have been the full guy. <laughs> Ooh, oh, hey. that's terrible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Puns are always the worst unless you think of them first. <laughs> I All was right. trying to get nay in there, but um, <laughs> goal it wasn't working. Guy. Right, goal guy. All right. All right, Mark, leave us with uh, some, some uh, Mark A. Pittman surprising gift of doubt uh, wisdom. And, uh, and, and we'll, we'll leave it there, please. Yeah. Well, thanks so, so much for having me on the show. And pleasure. I, I th- my pleasure. Think one of the things that I think is really important, well, there's two things I'd like to end with. One is, it, so we've hinted at assessments. If you're doing assessments as part of your teamwork, um, part of your own personal growth, I love them. Don't let them confine you. They're, not, they're meant to help you grow in grace and understanding of other people, not to slap labels on people and pigeonhole them. So I'll just, that's a, one thing that's a big big axe I like to grind. But I think going forward, just people leaving, you know, listening to this, um, as you work through the, whatever the days are ahead of you and you find yourself asking, you know, criticizing yourself, being really hard on yourself, try to pause and just say, well, what if this is exactly the gift that I have for the sector? What if, what if this limitation is actually the strength and the, the unique bend that I give? Because I feel like when you're, feel like you're broken. You may be, but you could be on the verge of greatness. The goal guy. The book is The Surprising Gift of Doubt. Use uncertainty to become the exceptional leader you are meant to be. Get the book, do the assessments. Don't let them pigeonhole you. Mark Pittman, you'll find him and his company at concordleadershipgroup.com. And he's at Mark A. Pittman. Thank you again, Mark. Real pleasure. Thank you. Next week, Heather Burright with Performance Improvement. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you. Find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn2 Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. And by SendInBlue the only all-in-one digital marketing platform empowering nonprofits to grow. Tony.ma slash sendinblue. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. Be with me next week for Nonprofit Radio. Big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out. And be great.